I'm Ethan Devitt. And I'm Nick Spencer. And welcome to this special six-part podcast series in which we explore the importance and scale of biodiversity loss and what we as investors can do to try to address it. These matters are complex, but they are also urgent. They are complex because some of the gains are ephemeral. They are urgent because biodiversity relates to all life on Earth, which we are all dependent on as a life support system. Humans depend on animals and plants for food, for the air we breathe, for medicines, for clean water, and for protection against natural disasters such as floods and hurricanes. And time is running out. The UN HU Biodiversity Targets of 2010 set out five strategic goals and 20 targets to be met by 2020. Governments globally have failed to meet their 10-year biodiversity goals for the second consecutive time. This has real economic implications, but do customers and companies realise it? As stated by Dragon Capital Executive Chairman and Co-Founder Dominic Scriven, in a press release announcing the initiative of a chair at Exeter University in Biodiversity Economics, how can markets price the absence of birdsong? How much are people willing to pay to maintain the existence of or be compensated for the loss of biodiversity in all its forms? The Swiss Re Institute recently calculated that 55% of global GDP is dependent on biodiversity and ecosystem services. Just to take one example, that of pollination. The global pollinated crop market is valued at between $277 and $577 billion. And the world has, of course, recently seen a dramatic decline in the top pollinators. The recently published Ascupta report highlighted the economic and well-being implications of ignoring biodiversity loss. It also showed how protecting biodiversity and economic prosperity could be achieved if we rebalance our demand for nature's goods and services with the capacity to supply them. The report also underscores how nature needs to be embedded in policy and economic planning and its losses accounted for. In this first podcast of the series, we set the scene. We ask what biodiversity is and why it is important. We look at what corporate action has to do with it and how it can be mobilized to address it. We then start diving into some of the topics in more detail. We start in episode two by examining water, the role oceans play in carbon absorption and how oceans are a source of such a large percentage of the Earth's biodiversity. We then move to, in episode three, into the Earth's forest, examining the threat that deforestation poses to species. We stay close to this topic in episode four when we examine threats from soil erosion and look at the emerging increased focus on regenerative agriculture. Episode five looks at pollinators and other animals threatened with extinction as we discuss the implications of being in the midst of the world's sixth mass extinction event. Finally, in episode six, we wrap up the series with a focus on solutions that can be imagined to tackle the crisis across many different dimensions. Let's start with some very basic high-level questions exploring what biodiversity actually is, why it is important, and how we can engage with companies in order to protect it. I spoke with Emma Berntman, who is part of the engagement team in EOS at Federated Hermes. Her engagements are focused on companies in Northern Europe and the consumer goods and retail and financial sectors. She also leads a natural resource stewardship theme team at EOS, where biodiversity is one of the six sub-themes. She's a master's in biomedicine and a PhD in cell and molecular biology. So let's start off with a very fundamental question. What do we mean by biodiversity? 
What exactly is biodiversity? Well, according to official definitions, biodiversity refers to variation. And this is at three levels, genetic, species, and ecosystem. But in its simplest term, biodiversity means the variety of life on Earth. And this covers the immense diversity of plants, animals, insects, and other organisms, such as bacteria, in land, ocean, and freshwater ecosystems. And why is protecting biodiversity important? Well, if we look at ecosystems, these are composed of complex webs of different species, and they all exist in a delicate balance, and they're also interdependent in numerous ways. Now, high levels of biodiversity enable ecosystem services to function effectively. And by ecosystem services, we mean things that are absolutely fundamental to life, such as, well, oxygen production, clean air, the water cycle, also the provision of food. Healthy and biodiverse soils enable the recycling of organic matter, carbon sequestration, and the regulation of nutrients so that food crops but also other plants can grow. Now, it's, it's really important to understand that biodiversity, which, as we said before, is the degree of variability, enables individual species and whole ecosystems to be resilient and adapt to changes in external condition. And this capacity is essential, and it's especially important now as climate change alters temperatures, precipitation patterns, as well as the frequency and intensity of extreme weather events. So you can think of biodiversity as enhancing the productivity of ecosystem services and increasing resilience in the face of shock. So what exactly is the value of biodiversity? How do we measure it? Well, it's difficult to pin it down to an exact value. Obviously, there's an intrinsic value to nature that goes beyond financials. Some estimates place the value of ecosystem services and natural capital at between 125 and 145 trillion US dollars per annum. And the World Economic Forum has reported that over half of global GDP is either highly or moderately dependent on nature. But really, when you think about it, all life on Earth and all businesses to varying degrees are dependent on the common goods provided by nature. Now, unfortunately, despite its value, the current levels of biodiversity loss are alarmingly high. A global study of nature has revealed that up to 1 million species are at risk from extinction. And this is at a known 8 million species. And that the rate of extinction is actually increasing. Uh, We have the Living Planet Index, who builds on these statistics. And it shows that there has been, on average a 68% decrease in mammal, bird, amphibian, reptile, and fish population sizes between 1970 and 2016. This is a very short time, I would like to point out. And it is reversing these trends in this decade is absolutely critical for us. How do we translate that into a business case for protecting it? What impact does biodiversity loss have on businesses, on corporate profits? There is one school of thought that suggests that corporate activity is responsible for much of the biodiversity loss. I would certainly agree with you. I mean, investors and companies' current approach to nature is unsustainable, and it is a key driver of biodiversity loss. 
And as we mentioned before, is biodiversity and ecosystem services form the basis of our economies and society. But on the whole, they still remain overlooked as key value drivers and risks. Now, if you look at the particular risk, this, of course, vary by sector and geography. Some sectors like agriculture, food and beverage, forestry and household products are almost completely dependent on ecosystem services and healthy levels of biodiversity throughout their supply chains. The decline of pollinators and the degradation of topsoil are particularly concerning and may lead to challenges in reliably sourcing good quality raw materials. Also, consumer preferences are gradually changing with a greater focus on sustainability and transparency. So it's really important that companies are proactive and innovative in developing nature-positive operations, products, as well as supply chains. And on the flip side, companies that are found to be responsible for deforestation, oil spills and ecosystems, and any other form of biodiversity decline are likely to face severe reputational risks. And finally, there's also likely to be increasing policy and legal risks in this area, like the Paris Agreement for Climate Change. The targets that will be agreed at the Biodiversity COP15 will have to be delivered by countries as well as companies. And the EU's biodiversity strategy already targets the protection of at least 30% of land and seas by 2030 and includes ambitions to increase organic agriculture to 25% of total EU agriculture, as well as have the use of the most hazardous pesticides and reverse the decline of pollinators. And what are the engagement priorities? You work within the Federated Hermes EOS division, so engagement is your focus. What are the priorities and what are some of the spotlight issues? We've recently developed a high-level framework for engaging with companies on biodiversity. Companies' relationship with nature can be characterized by impacts and dependencies. Our first expectation is that companies have to assess the extent to which their business models are dependent on biodiversity and ecosystem services and the potential risk associated with this dependency. And in parallel, companies also need to understand, uh, mitigate and reverse the negative impact that their operations and supply chains are having on biodiversity. And this would include mitigating their contribution to the main drivers of biodiversity loss, like climate change, land use change, and pollution. And as best practice, EOS is calling on companies to commit to having a net positive impact on biodiversity throughout their operations and supply chains by 2030 at the latest. Now, our engagement framework which you can explore in the full white paper, Our Commitment to Nature, outlines how each company's net positive goal should be accompanied by strong governance, effective measurement, an impactful strategy, and regular disclosure. Of course, the particular approach will depend on the company and the sector, but the topics that we've focused on so far are eliminating deforestation, supporting their transition to regenerative agriculture, and investing in impactful nature-based solution to address the dual challenges of climate change and biodiversity loss. I find it interesting that you have a net positive impact as your goal, because if we're looking at, say, climate change, we're looking at net zero, neutral. You, the net positive is clearly a step further. What kind of positive impact have you seen or companies maybe aspire to, or would you encourage them to inspire to? I mean, the starting point here is that 
protecting biodiversity and ensuring that biodiversity loss doesn't happen is much more cost effective than actually restoring degenerated land. So one of the things that we look at with companies is, and this, as we mentioned with deforestation, we know this is a systemic issue. So companies have made commitments and are involved in restoring forests, for example, in different parts of the world. We have large global tech companies as well as within the food production sector. So that can either be a commitment to end deforestation, but also a commitment to restore degraded forest. And this is happening in the US, it's happening in Africa. We also have tree planting in Holland, among other climate commitments from certain global energy companies. So these are just a few examples of what companies the commitments they put in place today. And what are some of the most compelling solutions that you've seen? And what kind of timeframes can you think about? Well, as a time frame, we need to see consolidated action within the next 10 years and really preferably by 2030 see the, this net positive impact on biodiversity. So the time frame is short. What we know about biodiversity loss is that food production is a key driver on land. So we need to ensure that food is produced in a sustainable manner to mitigate the sector's impact on climate change, land use change, such as deforestation, as well as ocean degradation. Now, to other aspects that also need to be addressed is the use of damaging inputs, such as pesticides, and also for a focus on restoring soil health through regenerative agricultural practices. Now, if we do these things, we'll need technological innovation to build sustainable food systems. But we also need to change production and consumption patterns by moving towards a circular economy approach of reduce, reuse, recycling. And biodiversity loss and climate change, as we said, it's intrinsically linked, which makes it also imperative that we decarbonize both our energy systems as well as wider society. And as I said, these changes need to be put in place within the next decade. And I just want to also tie this back to the SDGs and two of them, life below water and life on land, they're explicitly linked to biodiversity, while many more are indirectly linked, including those relating to poverty, gender equality, health, climate action, and others. In fact, some analysis show that the decline of biodiversity and ecosystems will undermine progress towards 80% of the SDG targets. Now, as we sit still disrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic, has this brought into sharper focus the problem of biodiversity loss, the potential for spread of zoonotic diseases? Has this changed the nature of the problem or just elevated it in our consciousness? I'd say in some ways, COVID-19 has both posed a challenge for the global biodiversity agenda but also highlighted the problematic relationship we have with nature. If we look at the Convention on Biological Diversity, COP15, which was initially scheduled for October last year, it got postponed by the pandemic. Now, on the other hand, the pandemic has helped to really put the focus on this, the relationship that we have with nature and bringing the need to protect and restore biodiversity to the forefront. Now, new infectious diseases often emerge as a result of pathogens moving from animal hosts to human hosts. 
And these diseases, which we know include COVID-19, but also SARS and Ebola, they're called the zoonotic diseases. And the link between human activity and, and zoonotic disease has been known for some time. The exploitation of wildlife through trade, hunting and land use changes that results in habitat destruction increases the likelihood of viruses moving from animals to humans. So there's definitely a link here between COVID-19 and biodiversity loss. In order to get a different perspective, we spoke with Gillian Rutherford, Head of Reinsurance Sustainability at Swiss Re, to ask her some of the similar questions around how she defines biodiversity and her perspective. How would you describe biodiversity? It's all life. So often we think of wildlife and we're there with the tigers and the elephants, but it's all life. It's all plants, it's all animals, it's all soil microbes, it's all bacteria and fungi. So it's really all wildlife that one can think of, all, all life. Biodiversity also includes genetic diversity, so the diversity of some of the plants that we see out there and how they, how they differ from each other. I talk about it in terms of stability. For me, biodiversity equals stability, equals resilience. So if we have a very biodiverse or diverse system in which we're living, it is more stable. And I also think of that, you know, we often think of it in terms of our workforce. It's often used as that example. If you have a very diverse workforce, then you have a rather stable and productive workforce. I like to think of that as a good analogy for biodiversity as well. Uh, Our existence really is dependent on biodiversity, on intact ecosystems, oceans being one of them. So what is an ecologist doing at a reinsurer? And how does this relate to systems thinking? So the reinsurer is uh, sharing sharing the risk, of course. And, and in terms of resilience, it's, it's really our key role to help society bounce back from some very extreme events and some very frequent events. Translate that now to the question of biodiversity, of ecology, of what in the world I'm doing working for a reinsurer. I think there are a few ways of looking at that too. So what's needed right now really is systems thinking, connecting different problems, climate change, biodiversity. They're not two separate topics. They are very, very interlinked as are many other aspects, right? We could say mental health, biodiversity, not separate topics as well. So what's required is systems thinking and ecologists are trained in that simply because they're working with entire ecosystems. So that's why I believed (laughs) that I was a relevant profile for a reinsurer. Swissery has over time also, I think, recognised that that people with this very interconnected way of thinking are, are highly valuable, right? And, and I think many insurers and reinsurers employ people from all sorts of backgrounds coming back to this point of diversity. Where should we start in taking this into account? Starts with awareness. So we need to understand the risks that we're facing and what it means for our business, be that insurance, be that banking whatever. So understand the risks, understand the connections and start taking it into account, right? So that's what's missing at the moment, right? When there's not a true cost applied to what we buy, what we do, 
you know, how we invest, the impact of our activities, that true cost or the impact to the environment is not generally taken into account. So it starts with awareness, understanding the impact, and then starting to factor that in into uh, costing of risks, if you're thinking about insurance, the benefits of our activities as well, the potential for insurance products that protect nature, so nature-based solutions would be one, a better reflection of the benefits of nature on people's mental health. Can you give us an example of how the industry is taking into account the risk of climate change and its impact? The way I like to look at it, one example that I like to use is, is Louisiana. It's this very low-lying area of land in the southern coast of the US that as a swamp land is heavily impacted by floods and storm surge. And the example I use is that if the state of Louisiana and the US would, would invest more in sort of uh, nature-based solutions, restoring some of the, the swamp areas, some other forms of infrastructure, they could reduce their expected flood costs by $5.3 billion annually. So when you think of numbers like that, are we taking those into account in our insurance costing? Are we taking into account where areas and homes, people's homes are naturally better protected because there's a buffer of a wetland between them and the sea. Are we taking that into account? I don't think so, right? And that's what we're looking at. And insurance at the moment is thinking about sea level rise, is thinking about storm surge and some of the associated impacts, and it's retreating from some areas because of that, but without taking into account, in my opinion, exactly this topic of, okay, but wait a minute, in this area, there's a very intact wetland that's protecting this set of houses. So can we do better at that? I think we can. And that is where the costing comes in. Also relate to soil and soil health. Soil is in itself a living ecosystem made up of a lot of bacteria and fungi, inorganic matter, and obviously water. Right, all of these very life critical elements and, and, and things. And a soil's health is critical to water retention, to water quality, to the health of whatever's growing there. And I would say we it's been rather underestimated the last decades and centuries, right? This importance of soil and how valuable a, a healthy soil is. And you can see that with farming practices, right? soil is left bare often on a farm, then it's washed away. I can tell you when I fly home to New Zealand at times and I am landing when flying to New Zealand was more was a lot easier. When you're landing and you can see the soil washing out to the ocean, you can see it when you're looking down on the rivers. There's something really fundamentally wrong, right? And this is often because the soil is left bare, it just gets washed away. So soil health again, I believe has been undervalued, underestimated. And this washing away of soil is just one observation I've made, one symptom of our not caring for our soils. I do see a trend towards better protection of soil. There's a lot of discussion around regenerative agriculture. One very, very, that's all about soil health, right? And one, there are clear tactics that you, or strategies and tactics that you take in order to protect your soil, like having a cover crop, like lower tillage, 
not having monocultures, looking at the diversity of the plants that you grow in the soil, because that's also very essential for soil health. So there's many measures that are being taken that I see trends towards that. It's going from a, and this is as far as I understand it, it's going from a rather extractive mentality to a stewardship mentality. So really looking at the system and nourishing it because it's nourishing us, right? Rather than than looking to just grow something and extract, just keep extracting and input fertilizers, but inputting fertilizers in a way that is not healthy for the soil ultimately. It's not taking into consideration the, the microbiology. We, we talk about carbon farming as a topic. For how long can your soil capture carbon? There's quite a lot of uncertainty around that. In summary, biodiversity is all life on Earth. It is hard to value, but an essential start has been made. Accounting for biodiversity losses and embedding these in policy and economic planning are essential. I'm Ethan David. And I'm Nick Spencer. Thank you for listening to our introductory podcast on our six-part series. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast to hear the rest of your series. <laughs>